Welcome to another episode of Breaking into Cybersecurity, CISO Thursdays. And today we go even up from CISO to Chief Security Officer. Um, but for those of you following us on LinkedIn, follow myself, follow Malcolm. We will uh, try to provide you, try to extract as much insight as we can uh, from him during this session. For those of you on YouTube, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and then the notification button down there so that next time we come on, you get notified that we're on. And for those of you joining us on podcast after the fact, don't forget to share it with all your friends and family so that they can be interested in cybersecurity too, because we need people from all backgrounds, all work studies, all industries to really combine in cybersecurity and have some sort of security mindset so that we could be more secure as a culture than if we just had a security team siloed over here. Malcolm, with that, um, anything you want to say to, to that intro and what we could do to be secure from an organization's culture? Yeah, you know, for me, culture is the strongest form of control. And so if we have the, the cultural aspects, not only with the security team, which I think we do, but more broadly, the IT team, the business unit team, the entire organization, then we have a sense of, of purpose, a sense of mission, an alignment between the security objectives and the business objectives. If you can bind those things together, you'll have the right cultural underpinnings that allow you to make better risk decisions that again, protect uh, the organization, but as I like to say, protect to also enable it and, and protect to enable people, data and the business. Yeah, I always think about when someone tries to reintroduce a control after the fact or to change a process after the fact that they neglect how change how humans actually change and what it really takes to, for someone to change potentially a process that they've been doing for two three years uh just so that we can include our security tool uh part of the way yeah absolutely i think you know o over the years basically because of just the way in which security has grown up it's it's always been a reactionary it's always been after the fact and, and that's true of, uh, you know, what we're, we're anchored in today because the logs and the alerts and, and all that type of stuff. But it's, it's more true from that kind of systemic systems engineering and development processes where we really haven't done the right quality capability. We haven't done the right, in, in essence, architectural underpinnings in many cases when we conceptualize a business process when we conceptualize the system to then put in place the right, uh, you know, things that that manage the data, shape the path of what the potential risks would be, and and that's true of both tech companies who've, you know, sold us stuff with too many riddled vulnerabilities because they're just focused on their market objectives and and time to market and and cost, um, and it's also true of us in in the IT sense, you know, because um, I've seen it, I've experienced where CIOs like, I want to see your security strategy. Okay, great. Can you tell me what the IT strategy is? Well, well, why do you need that? Well, okay, well, gee, my security strategy and security architecture should fit, fit into the IT strategy and the IT architecture, which should also be in the context of the business um, architecture. And, and the purpose of and the mission of the organization, right? And sometimes we, we too often um, also go the other way and ask security for some things that the IT or the business hasn't even really fully understood what they want to do yet. Yeah, definitely hear you there. And I think as you shift into a cloud-like environment where you have startups, they start in the cloud now you have to envision how can you create an organization that from scratch will have potential connections to many partners, right? Because 
when you're starting up, you're likely going to use SaaS providers. And are they going to do the due diligence on all those SaaS providers in the beginning? Or are they just going to pick what's cheap and fast and kind of get things up going so that they can um, gain that momentum? And then as they adapt from there, then they have to kind of pull back and re-architect sort of um, for their scale, for, for their growth. Yeah, and, and in many cases, just because of that evolution, and some of it kind of makes sense because you have these incremental things that you're trying to do all the time that then says, oh, I got to hook this up. I got to pull this data. I can combine this to that, this to that. And, and so you have this, in essence, unplanned urban sprawl of systems and applications and data and users and connectivity. You know, for anybody who's who's been in the Bay Area, you know, in, in, in a lot of cases, there's the equivalent of kind of the Winchester Mystery House right, of, of these dead ends and stairways to nowhere and a connection over here and, and stuff like that, because it's just almost haphazard. So imagine you go to a physical environment, imagine going into a data center, and then you just have, you know, systems and racks and stuff and shelves and, and all these things racked up and wires here and wires there and stuff like that. Back, you know, uh, in, in the late 90s, I was helping build Intel's uh, online services business. We hosted Google back in the day when it was launching, believe it or not. We were trying to build what has become the AWS, the Azures, you know, that SaaS and infrastructure as a service capability. And uh, one of the, the leaders there who worked for me, TKTN, uh, former factory guy who built factories, we were building the data centers. And the contractors, when we would just be racking up stuff, he'd walk through and they'd just be the spaghetti mess of wiring. You know what he'd do? He'd take shears and snip all the wires. He's like, if it's a mess, it's going to be a mess. How are we going to figure it out? How are we going to do the traceability of, of different things? And he'd cut the shears and make them rewire it, right? Um, we don't practice that same discipline of, it, it, you know, it's, it's always, is it just good enough? And can we get the, the functionality we want versus going, do we have the functionality we want, but the protections we need, Right. Yeah, your story reminds me of when I worked for Terramark back in their data center. Um, they've been since acquired by uh, Yahoo uh, or Verizon, and I don't know who owns it now, but um, they, they were one of the second largest data centers in the U.S., and they hosted fiber wires coming in, and we had to do troubleshooting on those wires. So if it wasn't labeled properly end to end if it wasn't um wired properly in the interconnects i then had to like weave through all that to try to troubleshoot and oftentimes it was because it was done incorrectly it was uh capped incorrectly at one end and not working uh but yeah, uh, let's not go back to those days. <laughs> now we have uh, AWS to do, do that for us. Um, t tell us a little bit, as you as you grow a company, as we, we started talking about startups. How do you start to grow your security leadership, your security teams? Yeah, to be honest, I, I don't... It's, the context is different if it's a large organization or a small one, you know, and I've spent most of my life at Intel for 24 years, right? Monolithic organization. And then when I took over security a little over 20 years ago, it was a small team, mainly policy oriented with a little bit of investigations, right? And then we built it into a, a broader capability, looking at all aspects of information risk and then connected to product security and corporate emergency management. Really, the, the complete kaleidoscope to uh, of things that were adjacent and related. Um, now, being at a startup, and when I went to Silence and, and, and now at Epiphany and stuff, smaller companies, right? Silence was 150 people and I joined and, and was almost 1,000 when BlackBerry bought it. You know, there was a lot of security expertise. We had a small IT team, but I was really the first, I'd say, dedicated internal um, security person. At Epiphany, again, we're an early stage startup, you know, 20 ish people. Um, it, it's almost no different. You have to think about uh, the purpose. What's the business objective? What's in, in the context of the business objective, what does security need to do? 
right, to manage the risk. And, and I define the risk and the security stuff way broader than most people do as a CISO reporting to a CIO with the scope only that the CIO has on certain things, right? I, I look at, at information risk broadly. It includes privacy. It includes compliance. It includes the social responsibility aspects of things, the ethical considerations of it. And, and when you start doing that, which I've done in startups, just like I did in, in kind of evolve that picture at, at Intel, you start to look at things and you go, again, getting back to cultural stuff. What are my corporate social responsibility principles? How does security, how does privacy, how does data protection and understanding that um, get embedded in the social responsibility principles? How do you look at each role and understand their impact on those things and the accountability of those individuals? How do you architect the choices for the business so that we're making good risk decisions and putting controls in place that not only manage and mitigate the risk, but don't impede the business velocity or the mission objective of the business? It's the same thing. The scale and context is, is just basically the difference. Yeah, that's very interesting. And talking about like scale and context, how do you start to ensure that that great culture is there from the beginning as you scale up so that when you implement MFA or when you implement zero, zero trust architecture, that everyone's not like, oh, no, I can't do work now. Instead, like, oh, great, you're, you're securing us so that we only have access to the things that we need and preventing threat actors from being able to do stuff that they shouldn't be doing. Yeah. So for me, it, you know, if you think of culture, it's a tone from the top, right? And, and I'll, I'll tell you, cause I've seen this, I've talked to a lot of peers on it. I've, uh, I, I've asked this question at events where you, you go and you say, Hey, how many during cybersecurity where this month in October, your CIO, your CTO, your, your you know, um, CFO has, in an open forum with all employees, said information security is important and all this type of stuff. Everybody raises their hand. I said, and how often when they get back to their office, they're bitching and moaning about different things. And they basically, well, why do we need to deal with this? And why do we need to do that? I go, that that's not tone from the top. That's, that's a, I'm projecting this because I have to for compliance and all this feel good things, but I'm not as, as the CEO, the CFO, the general counsel going to practice and behave in the appropriate fashion, right? Um, and encourage and make decisions understanding my responsibilities, right? You have to have both. Just don't preach it, you have to practice it. If you, if you have those differences, what's gonna end up happening? People pay more attention to what people do versus what they say. And if you can go ignore all that crap, then that means I can, which means the next person can. That is really the tone from the top. And that is the, the, the real culture that needs to be created. You have to walk the talk and do those things. And that also means not over controlling things. When you have a breach, don't overreact and lock everything down and screw up the business. Because guess what? A lot of people have done that. Right. Because they think that's good security. That's not good security. That's screwing up your business. Right. And in some cases, less control is more control. So you have to think about all those different things, which is why the, the sociology, the psychology, the the business objectives and the need to protect data and systems. It, it's a multivariate equation. We got to figure out how to optimize all of that, again, in the context of what the business is trying to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's say hi to some of our guests that are uh, chiming in. We have uh, Professor Roger White. Good afternoon. We have Scott Jester uh, from YouTube. Good afternoon. And then earlier you spoke about um, preparing for the worst, like a business continuity plan. Um, then we have Nilo saying hi, everyone. If you guys have questions, feel free to send them in and we'll have... Um, We'll have Malcolm answer them for you. And then hi to Leslie as well. Um, let, let's continue along the path. So we, we've started to implement the program, the structure. How do we build up the team? What do you look for in a small team 
and how can we grow that? Yeah, so for, first for me, I always try and hire for three characteristics, people that are hungry, humble, and smart. They're that, okay. they might not have the pedigree, they might not have the skill set, but guess what? If they're hungry, humble, and smart, they'll figure it out. You know, I learned a long time ago that hard work beats talent that doesn't work so hard. I don't have a pedigree. I'm not a technologist. I tripped my way into security. And luckily, I had a bunch of the folks in, in the security team that worked for me at Intel for a long time that taught me aspects about things. But I haven't been fingers on keyboard. I haven't written code since the 80s and Fortran. But I always have to learn. And if you're not um, a learner, you're going to be irrelevant at some point. One of the comments was, uh, how do you define smart? Uh, in, in, in simple definition, you know what you don't know, and you're willing to go learn it. Those yeah, that, that, that think they know everything, in my opinion, are not the smartest people in the room. Smart people are the people who know how to learn and know how to go find the people who know that knowledge because we can't know everything. And, you know, and again, we, we certainly for certain roles, they need to have a certain level of technical acumen and business acumen, right? They have to have a level of um, communication skills and collaboration skills to navigate things, right? They have to have a, a, a bias towards action with a responsiveness and an agility to what they're doing. Um, you know, so you, you can look at the resumes, you can look at the educational background, you can look at the work experience, but go beyond that. Because if you just look for the pedigree, you might end up with a dud. <laughs> so if we, if we take the pedigree, whether that pedigree is, um, an actual degree, bachelor's, master's, whatever, or a certification, what do you, what do you look for on that resume? You know, for me, it's, it, it depends upon the context of the role. So let's say I'm hiring a cloud security specialist or architect or engineer, right? I would want to want to know that they understand virtualization. I'd want to understand know that they understand containers. I'd want to know that they understand uh, a multi-cloud environment, you know, and, and have enough experience around that, right? Now, if I'm hiring an entry-level SOC analyst, well, a generic um, technical background and maybe time spent in a help desk troubleshooting um, multiple things on the fly with volume would be a great skill. But if I need a SOC analyst that is supporting the manufacturing environment, somebody who has a little bit of manufacturing background and understands, again, the context of what those alerts and what that triage would look like for a manufacturing environment versus just a general office environment for, for laptops and PCs, right? Um, if I'm hiring a, uh, you know, somebody in the investigations team, again, to me, there's also beyond the technical skill set, um, perhaps a law enforcement background or a legal background and understanding, you know, um, evidence collection and preservation and, and that type of stuff would be useful. Um, so again, I think you have to look at different aspects depending upon the context of the role. If I'm hiring a director on my organization, again, I'd want to see somebody who's rotated between, you know, perhaps infrastructure and maybe the SOC and, and maybe application security and stuff like that, because I want to see that breadth and depth of experience versus just somebody who's come up through one channel who has a, a more homogenous perspective and, and a limited view of not only the technology, but the business. So th there's two things that I want to tease out from <clears throat> what you said there. First, we, we talked about entry-level roles and hiring for entry-level talent. Um, how would you pipeline for today, for tomorrow, uh, a, a pipeline to ensure that you keep getting those great entry-level talent? Well, I think there's a couple ways to do it. I, I think 
we always have to be recruiting first and foremost. Um, the second thing is looking within your organization. Again, when I was at Silence, when I was at Intel, there was a breadth of the organization. So I didn't have to do a lot of external hiring at Intel, right? Massive bench strength of technical and business acumen. But we always refreshed with recent college grads that we could train and stuff like that. If I'm in a middle market company um, making widgets in Wichita, Kansas, I might have to go to a junior college. I might have to recruit from somebody who's a technician coming out of the military. And then I'm going to have to grow the talent, not buy the talent. And frankly, considering how expensive talent is, growing it might be cheaper. But the other thing when it gets to how do you always build a bench at different levels, if you don't, as a security leader and, and as an organizational leader and manager, again, getting back to culture, right? I, I've luckily never suffered for people who wanted to work in the organizations I work for because they see the value of the organization at the broad level. They see the value of the context of security, right? I, I have a leadership framework that I created um, several years ago that I have the trademark for six words. I believe, I belong, I matter. I have always tried to create a culture where my employees feel like they can believe in the mission of the company, believe in the mission of the security organization, believe in their management, believe in themselves and believe in their peers. Then they have to feel like they belong because you create a culture that the organization frankly gives a crap about you as an individual. And at the end of the day, if the work you do and the work the broader organization does matters, you've got a stickiness. People are in their career stuff. There's purpose, passion, there's impact that they can see. And, and I think when, when leaders and managers cultivate a culture where an employee can, on an occasional or routine basis, say, I believe, I belong, I matter, you're always cultivating, you're always recruiting, and people always want to work for you. Wow. I, I want to work for you now. Um, <laughs> the other uh, thing that you, you touched on is you mentioned that you like to see people that rotate. So would you say that in general, you look for generalists versus specialists or for a, a leadership role? Or does that differ? Is that like a, a more broader approach that you use? It's It's a broader approach. You know, take, you know, uh, medicine, right? We've got general practitioners. We've got orthopedic surgeons. We've got um, foot doctors. We've got thoracic surgeons. We've got heart specialists. So you, in some cases, you're going to need a specialist who understands one particular thing and understands it well. But guess what? That's all they can do, right? So unless they have breadth and depth, then they're going to be only fit for purpose for that one thing. And guess what risk is? It's one, temporal, it's changing. Two, there's a diverse set of knock-on effects, right? And so you need a mixture of both, but I prefer when I have a specialist that they, that they are much more of an individual contributor or they're managing a small, small team for that particular specialty practice. But if they want to be a, uh, a more senior person or a CISO or a CSO or a chief trust officer or even a chief privacy officer, some people would say privacy is a specialty. It is. But even the chief privacy officer, because I've been one, needs breadth and depth of understanding, right, to put that stuff into context and then to create the right environment that respects privacy but also uh, enables the business and in the same time as working well with the security team and the other risk functions so that you're not at odds with each other, which sometimes can happen, particularly between security and privacy, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it, I was reading a book recently from uh, David Epstein called Range, and I, I, I really believe in that concept. I, I grew up that concept. I didn't know I was living a range concept, but... <laughs> I never like to specialize in one area. I, I like to learn about cloud. I like to learn about 
uh, storage. I like to learn about infrastructure, a little bit of everything. And then I can have a conversation with everyone about everything, but I'm not the one that's keeping everything up. Yeah, I mean, you go back, what, when I started Intel 30 plus years ago, if you were a specialist in mainframes, well, that's pretty niche these days. Context has changed, but if you said, hey, I'm just going to be a specialist in IBM mainframes, okay, great. Okay, go back uh, early 90s. I'm going to be a specialist in SAP basis and ABOP. Okay, great. SAP still big, stuff like that, but you know, look at the, the broader context of, of where ERP platforms have evolved and, and what's there now, right? You know, so if, you, you know, on the one hand, specialization is good. On the other hand, it can also pigeonhole you and reduce the organizational agility and your individual career agility to do other things. Yeah, uh, definitely agree with that. I, I've I've been more the person that says, "Hey, do, can you go do this?" Yes, let, let's go figure it out. Let's go figure out how it works, and then and then we can help tackle it. So, Malcolm, what we're, so we, we've created a pipeline. We have a small team. Um, we're, we're starting. You mentioned hiring in, internally, but what what do we do for those that? aren't ready yet for hiring like they're in high school they're in middle school they're in elementary school how do we prepare them for a world of interconnectedness and always needing to have security yeah i you know it's interesting when you say that right uh i'll give you an example um uh, one of um, my wife and our uh, gal that used to babysit our kids when they were small. She's now pushing 40, maybe late 30s, can't remember. But but a few years ago, uh, you know, she had a, a two-year-old daughter. Um, we had a, a, a picture from when they had gone to Disneyland. It was on a frame on our, on our mantle and stuff. You know, two-year-old daughter is like pointing at wants it. I give it to her. Her finger, she wants to swipe on it. Why? Because she grew up in a screen world, right? And it's like, hey, it's not working. It's like it's a a picture, not you know, a digital set of photos. So on the one hand, you know, you remember the whole thing, digital natives, cloud natives, and stuff like that. There is an acumen difference that people are growing up with, which positions them to not have it be so foreign. On the other hand, depending upon that experience and how well they've been taught from the time they were elementary school, middle school, high school, the equivalent of don't talk to strangers and the equivalent of data protection and all that context, you know, again, they might just be blase about it and go, ah, nothing's really hurt me. So therefore I don't need to worry about it. The the IT providers, my device providers, all these people that are giving me all these free things are protecting me. Instead of the reality is I'm the product and they're just trying to use me, right, um, in some cases. so, But I think we can do a better job as a society um, adding basic principles into elementary school, middle school, and high school um, around cybersecurity safety and the integrity. And then I think for people who have a technical acumen and, and we've got, you know, um, the coding and, and computer science classes, even in, in, in some of those uh, earlier days, embedding in there, um, you know, information and, and, and technology and digital ethics courses, get them to understand what's right and wrong about it. When they're coding, just don't reward them for getting the, the, the functionality they've done, grade them as well for the security and privacy of things. But that also falls true in, in, in the organizational context that we're in today. I mean, I've experienced this in tech companies, right? You could become, you know, the technical god, a fellow, a principal engineer, because you had patentable technology that sold product that had functionality that created revenue 
but it had a whole mess of vulnerabilities in it. But I, my view is you should never be given the principal engineer title to say you're a preeminent engineer unless you're, you're, you can demonstrate you're within building code, so to speak, that, that really limit the potential security and privacy implications of the technology you created. But so you went down an interesting path with regards to that. And it, it brings me back to, I took my son to a, um, a coding camp and for him to try out if he liked it. Oh, one second. And during, during their example of the creating the game, creating the functionality, they didn't even talk about, okay, we should verify our inputs. We, we should make sure that we don't add anything. And while it was geared at a seven-year-old, um, you should say like why you're doing something and not just, okay, put this in this bracket here so that we can um, stop the ball from going left to right. You, 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 sh you should explain the security concept. Hey, we're limiting the functionality as well. We're making sure it can't go past left and it can't go past right. And that also protects it from not going too far, not your, your bridge going off the screen or something like that and show it into um, a, a safety or security type concept, which they understand at that age. Yeah, it's no different. Take a physical example, right? If somebody was designing a building, a bridge, um, a house, right? We would expect when we're buying that or when we're hiring for it, they have been able to demonstrate they can do it with a level of structural integrity, right? Versus the shantytown approach, which means... Yeah, I can get a tarp. I can cobble all this stuff together. Yeah, it's still a dwelling. And yeah, maybe I can get cable and internet and stuff like that. But it's a fire hazard. It's a flood hazard. I mean, there, you know, we, we on the physical world, we don't like looking at that stuff and we can see the difference. But on the logical world, we turned a blind eye to it. But in really, in many cases, we have created the shanty town that's on a hillside that with just a little bit of rain washes away, right? <laughs> We, we we have and going back to your, your 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 principal engineer concept, it's almost because the business incentivizes fast production so that it can go out, it could go make money rather than safe production from the beginning. Because if you have safe production from the beginning, sure it takes a little bit longer, but it protects you in the long run. And I, 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 I've been able to communicate, hey, if you fix the bugs now, it costs you, say, $100. But if you let the bugs go to production and a threat actor exploits it, now it costs you $20 million. Which one do you want to do? <laughs> and, no, no, totally agree with you. Now, the problem that we've got, though, and again, I, I talk about this in, in, and I've written about it in my books and stuff. Um, there, controls create friction. They slow down people, data, business processes, chew up unnecessary compute cycles, right? Now, friction is not an immutable thing like gravity. We have the ability to adjust the friction. Now, on the security side of the world, the compliance side of the world, the audit side of the world, guess what? We're also not measured on the friction we're creating against the developers, against the business velocity, against the mission of the business. The security teams and the compliance teams and the people who are imposing controls need to also be held accountable to designing for a certain friction coefficient that does not add unnecessary cost to the business but can be seen in relation to those things. And instead, what we do is we put, you know, the equivalent of, of the railroad crossing guards or bollards or stuff like that. 
or we do the stupid thing and we just put up a yield or stop sign that everybody blows through until they collide with somebody, right? Yes. Um, and, and you know, it's interesting, right? I, 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 I'm an economist by background. Um, and if you look at transportation economics, and I used to study that years ago and do some things around it, the most effective and efficient traffic control mechanism is a roundabout. It's more economically efficient because things are moving. Um, when there is a collision, because you can't eliminate risk, the damage to the car, the damage to people and, 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 you know, um, uh, and stuff is less. Why? Because traffic continues to flow. And, you know, so, so, you know, I always, and I, even at Intel, I have this roundabout principle. I'm like, we got to create roundabouts because when people go into the roundabout, they become risk aware. They slow down. They think they're tuned in to what's going on around them. Right. And so there is a level of design that on the security side, the control side, the compliance side, we need to do a better job of. And if we designed better controls that manage the drag coefficient we're putting on the business, guess what? People would adhere to the controls better. Yeah. So like having a um, preventative control that lets the dev know, hey, that piece of code that you're, you just imported has known vulnerabilities. You might not want to use that. <laughs> or, um, yeah, you yeah, exactly. Or in, in that software development process, because you know, I own product security for a few years at Intel, right? And in, in, it's gotten better with SecDevOps and, and CICD pipelines and things that we're doing. But still, if I'm a developer, I'm coding, and then you're, you're having to have me get out of my design environment, my development environment, to go look up policies and check the box and stuff over here, guess what? You just took me out of my flow. So why don't we design those things into the software development tool, into the code repositories with the level of ease for me as the developer, right? I'm the user. If we design for my user experience as a developer and embed the security and privacy things to make it easy for me, guess what? more of that stuff's going to get done. Yeah, totally agree. Um, well, we've, we've, paused, we've passed the three-quarter mark, um, so I wanted to pivot the conversation a little bit. Let's take this question from earlier from Jasper. He, he was, he's saying he found a great book for breaking into cybersecurity a couple months ago, but was wondering what book might you find a word of the read today? You know, there's a there's a few there's a few books. So um, if you haven't seen it, a couple of friends of mine, um, I wrote actually a, a book quote for it. They just published the CISO Evolution book. Um, fantastic book um, uh, by uh, um, Matt Sharp and, and uh, um, Rock uh, Lambros. Fantastic book. Um, I also am a big uh, reader of, of management books and stuff like that. There's a, a great book a couple years ago called Grit. Um, again, it you know it's that that hunger, right? Yeah. Uh, how do how do you do um, those type of things? Another really really good read. Um, again, you get to ethics and stuff like that. There's a, there's a book by Mary Gentile. She's a professor at Darden uh, Graduate School of Management. I had talked with her when I was working on one of my books and, it, and it's um, called Voice to Values. And it really goes through a lot of, uh, I'd say real business cases around uh, you know, everything, nothing to do with security, but if you look at shipping the Pinto, if you look at the Challenger disaster, if you look at the uh, uh, emissions things with Volkswagen. I don't know why I'm using automobile analogies, but, <laughs> but, and the, but there's a bunch of them. People get, we know what the right answer is, but people are sometimes too silent and they don't have the right discussion. They don't have the right dialogue. I've got an article coming out next week at the U.S. Cyber Defense Magazine around choice architecture. I, I can architect better choices as a CISO and a security team. And if I architect the choice and I do the right framing, the right focus and the right facilitation, we're also going to 
have the right discussion and debate because these things are generally not black and white, but we've got to, we've got to um, have the right debate. We've got to have the right discussion. We have to have the right optics so that we understand our accountability and we have to look at risks through three lenses. There's risk to the business. There's risk to our customer. And then there's societal risk. They're all different. And if we just focus on risk to the business, that's risk to self. And guess what? That means I risk other people to preserve myself, which might not be the right answer, which is what I think Ford did when it shipped the Pinto for several years. They did things as risk to self rather than say, here's a kid in, in a car and what could happen to them in, the, in a collision, right? When they had the patent for an $11 part to be added to the car that would have made the whole thing a lot safer, right? So, so there's, again, like I said, there's, there's how you facilitate those dialogues. How do you frame it? And how do you focus it? And, and in many cases, sometimes we're choosing between what's the least crappy answer. Well, recognize that. And then have the discussion and debate and maybe something innovative can come out of it where you can take a risk and manage a risk at the same time. I, I think that third, <clears throat> that third risk lens that you mentioned, the societal risk, is often the, the one least considered today by many companies because it's the one that well, if something happens, we're out anyway. So like, why, like, we're going to be out of business. So why care? And I think that's unfortunately the problem. And then when companies that do become successful with that approach, social media companies, for example, um, the, the impact of society is huge. And we have to think about that. How do we input uh friction on them but not too much friction that it decreases innovation to create to continue creating new companies new ideas new technology but keeping that societal risk in mind yeah it's a great question so i i also wrote and published a, a an article in the u.s cyber defense magazine back in january there's a difference between speed and velocity Business always says, go faster, go faster, right? Um, I'll use an automobile analogy. We all know speed kills, right? Um, what a business actually needs is velocity. Velocity is speed with direction, speed with control, right? That, that will actually, going to my tagline, protect to enable people, data, and business. But what we have to do is, again, getting back to the control designs. We have to understand the friction we're putting on the business. If you put too much friction on the business, what happens? Either the business adheres to the control. Or they don't. And it, Yeah, exactly, or they don't. And if they <laughs> adhere to the control and there's too much friction, you've created a systemic business risk. You've affected time to market. You've affected revenue growth, right? Or they go around the control. You've spent money, you've spent time, you're checking the box on all the client compliance stuff. And guess what? The business has said, screw you, consciously or unconsciously, and went around the control. In which case, you have a false sense of control that's not actually doing what you intended it to do. So that's where that friction component is a design issue that we as the security community need to address. And if we spent more time focusing on control design and the efficiency and effectiveness of control for the business objective, we'd probably be in a better state than we are today. I, I'd agree with you there. And I, I think having that holistic approach to security, a lot of people don't consider. A lot of people focus security on the technology and the information, but they forget about the society, the, the privacy, the, the regulations. And it's always someone else after the fact that comes in and tacks those on. And that's the problem. Um, it's not built in from, from the start. 
Yeah, and it's and it's easy for us in many cases to say, well, this is the typical policy, or this is the standard, or this is a compliance objective, stuff like that, and go, but I'm only measured on my job, right? Well, the business is only measured on their job. Well, guess what? Because we have a myopic view of our role, and the business has a myopic view of their role, we stay in this we're going in different directions or we collide in and have friction with each other. So unless we actually grow our business acumen to help the business achieve their business objective while managing the risk, we're going to continue to screw it up. And I think that comes back to the question that I had in the beginning is how do we enable that business security culture from the beginning that, it's not siloed security, siloed business. It's, hey, we're working together to deliver an amazing experience to our customer. Like, that is what everyone is working towards, not just the business. Well, not- I, th- I think we've... Yeah, I, I, I think... You know, over the past couple of decades, I've been on the security side of things. I think we've made tremendous progress, um, but we still have a long way to go. Um, you know, in, in terms of our business acumen understanding, understanding how a business or an organization makes money or achieves its mission. Um, and again, you get back to, doesn't matter if it's a SOC analyst, a cloud security folks, if they don't understand how the business they're supporting makes money, services as a customer, meets their objective, they, they, they're just you know putting in controls in place without understanding that context. So we also have to grow that acumen at the beginning in our organizations, which in many cases we don't do, right? We hire for a specialist. Your, your job is to make sure code is clean. Well, yeah. but if they don't know what the functionality of the code is and what the mission objective is, they might be over controlling in some cases for something that's irrelevant. We do that all the time, right? Unless we own up to our failings, I don't blame the business for not walking towards our direction, right? And I think, you know, uh, that, that's where we can do it. And I think the other part is, even if we do that, but the tone from the top, from the CEO, the board, all this other stuff, is, is one of just placating to meet the bare minimum so that we don't have liability and and you know, we have uh, plausible deniability and we go, oh, you know, you can't, you know, this is tough, a sophisticated actor, you know, all that other stuff that's a distraction to things. If we don't, if we don't, if, if those business leaders don't have a level of, what I'd say real true understanding and true accountability, you're still going to be swimming upstream. It's easier if we embrace them, but it's still if they go, eh, you know, um, don't really care, just don't spend too much money, you know, don't have too much liability, and everything's the bare minimum at a compliance level. I, I, I go, it, it's it's lip service, not not really the cultural underpinning. And frankly, that wouldn't be an organization that I'd want to be in the security team supporting. Wow. I, I, I love the ethics that, that you stand behind, that you wouldn't want to work for a company like that. And I think we all have to have that, is where, where do we draw out the line in the sand? Um, so we've talked a, a lot about growing teams, growing companies. How do you grow your successor? You know, it's, it's interesting, right? So getting back to... Um, the breadth and depth. Um, so for me, they first have to have the right leadership capabilities. And for me, leadership is the art of motivating others to want to struggle for shared aspirations. Doesn't matter if that's the security side or I'm a business unit general manager. So you have to have the leadership qualities um, first and foremost. Um, you know, and that also includes communication skills. You need to um, talk in such a way that others want to listen to you and you need to listen in such a way that others want to talk to you. 
You need to have that. If you don't have that, you ain't going to be my successor. Um, <laughs> you also have to have a level of personal integrity. You have to be able to say, this is not happening on my watch and I'm willing to put my job on the line because that's an unacceptable risk to society, to the shareholders. If it's a business risk, okay, you know, let's just go walk the chain. And if the CEO wants to accept it and the only person or the only thing that is going to take the buckshot is the business, fine, right? Um, you know, so you, you have to have that personal integrity and objectivity where you will not succumb to ethical fatigue and cave or whitewash or water down the risk portrait because you were coached to by the CIO or the general counsel or the CFO. Um, you'll have uh, a data-driven, logical-driven discussion and the business will make its decision. And if you disagree with it, you can either accept it, you can fight it, or you can leave. Um, now, now then you get into the skills, right? Do they have you know, enough experience? Do they understand privacy? Do they understand compliance? Do they understand risk? Do they, do they understand the portrait of risk to the business, to the customer, to society? Do they have enough breadth and depth across cloud, endpoints, mobile? You know, do they, you know, do they have that acumen because they've experienced enough things, right? Um, I think if, if you do that and, and, and you grow that over time and you put all that together, you'll have the skills you'll have the scope and you'll have the style, frankly, to do the chief information security officer, chief security officer, chief trust officer role. So you, you mentioned a lot of things. Do they need to be expert in all those things or just be able to understand what's happening in those places? Because, I mean, all of those, like you mentioned, they're all different specialties. Um, so you're expecting them to be specialists of them all? or be able to understand them all? No, not at all, right? So again, I, I grew up at Intel um, and stuff like that. How do you become the CEO? Well, you're not a specialist in stuff. By the time you're moving to those ranks, you understand enough about a bunch of things, but you know who the specialists are. To become chief financial officer, you're not the tax accountant. You're not the person running treasury. You're not the person understanding you know, the detailed cost elements in a factory when you change a process technology, you might have been that 20 years ago, but you're not anymore when you're the CFO, right? It's no different. We're the CEO or business unit general manager of a function called security that has a lot of moving parts, <laughs> right? And a lot of connections across a whole mess of things. You know, it's, it's you know, when I was back at Intel, um, Intel CIO 16, 17 years ago um, was worried that I was getting bored because I was in the security role five or six years at that point. And I had always hopped jobs every 18 to 24 months across different business units, different roles and stuff like that until I wound in security. And he and, and, and so he sat me down and said, like, hey, Malcolm, I'm worried about your development plan, where it's going to go and, and and stuff because security is kind of a, a, a niche function. It, it's, it's a particular skill set. And I was like, ah, you're wrong. You know, there was a design company years ago, um, I think it was called IDEO, that talked about the ideal technologist. They were T-shaped. They have a breadth of business acumen. They had a depth of technical acumen, right? And I went to the board and I drew that. And he's like, yeah, exactly. He goes, so we need to give you more breadth and you need to experience more, more depth and stuff. And I said, you got the wrong model. Um, and I, I wrote this and codified it in my book. The, the ideal CISO or CSO needs to be Z-shaped. They have to have a breadth of business acumen. They have to have a breadth of technical acumen. And then the hash that creates the Z is the breadth and depth of understanding of risk, security, privacy, controls. And then wrapping all around that is a quality around integrity, communication, you know, objectivity, right? So I always want to find somebody who's growing in their breadth of technical acumen growing in their breadth of business acumen, growing in their breadth and depth of the security and risk understandings, but has the personal qualities and attributes of, again, integrity, objectivity, trust, right? 
that's that's the ideal candidate to to run security um in, in my opinion and do you i guess quickly do you hire from outside do you promote from within um do, do you create a succession plan years out before you're ready to move a good leader always does that again if i look at it and i go i'm the ceo of a business if i get hit by a bus tomorrow and everybody's looking around going, oh, we have nobody to run the business. I didn't do my job. As a leader, my job is to assure continuity of operations for the organization I'm running and the organization I'm supporting. And if I don't have a backup, if I don't have somebody who's a couple lieutenants that can step in at a moment's notice, I haven't done my job. That's what a leader does. They always can be replaced because they're always cultivating the people you know around them and behind them to be able to step into that role if you're not doing that you're not a leader wow uh, yeah that, that that's so true um we have a couple minutes left so i'm going to ask my last famous questions question and then we, we can wrap it up um this is going to be a hard one okay are you ready for it if you had to summarize everything Go. that we we talked about um, and everything in your journey into one piece of sage advice for someone that might be listening and that might want to follow in your footsteps, what might what would that be? Um, be curious, be passionate, and I think if you do those things, you know you're you're gonna end up in a good spot. Be curious, be, be passionate. I love that. I, I was waiting for the be humble part at the end uh, to go. Yeah, that's, that's probably <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the adder that I forgot. But uh, but yeah, it, it's it, you know if you have the right um, you know again it, it's 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 that that personal quality. But you're right. It, it it's be passionate, be curious, be humble. Um, and if you do those things, um, you'll, you'll end up in a good spot and you'll bring others along. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're going to take one last question when we wrapped up, um, in your three-legged stool of business, um, does societal risk include environmental risk? Absolutely. I'll give you a, a really good example, right? And, and again, something I worried about at Intel, but it, it wouldn't have to be Intel per se. You know, again, factories, small chemical plant, right? Got gases, chemicals, stuff like that. Cyber event that causes a gas leak or a spill of chemicals creates an environmental hazard in addition to a physical hazard, right? So so I think in, in that context, yeah, I, I do see how uh, cyber-related and, and information security and information technology-related risks can absolutely create environmental hazards. Well, with the the rise of connectivity for operational technology, it's it's not when it's going to happen. Uh, sorry, if it's going to happen, it's when because we're we're our, we've already had nation states that that demonstrate that. Um, but but, that, but that's a whole other a conversation. Totally <laughs> agree, but there's a difference. We should not, there's a difference between accepting risk and acceptable risk, right? There's a difference between um, the fact that we can't eliminate risk, just like we can't physically or in the financial markets, we can't eliminate risk. But, if the, but what we can do is eliminate the potential material impact if that risk manifests itself. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, well, Malcolm, thank you very much. Uh, Scott Jester says, another great interview. Thank you. Uh, to everyone that's joined us, follow myself, Malcolm, on LinkedIn. Follow us on YouTube. Hit that subscribe button and the notification button. And for those of you listening after the fact on podcasts, give us a 10-star review or at least five-star uh, wherever you're listening to us and share us with all your friends and family. We need as many people in cybersecurity as possible. And thank you all for joining us. Have a great day. Thanks, Chris.